Vaults. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. While our previous episodes have largely focused on biographies of specific individuals, this week we're going to take a different direction. I'm not a huge fan of trigger warnings, but due to the nature of the content of this episode, I think it bears stating that this week's OFTV will be looking at a triple homicide. This is a story that has long held my fascination, not because of the brutality of the events that occurred, but instead because of the power of the community response that followed. This is the story of how one fractured community united to respond to violence against trans sex workers and ultimately changed the history of the trans community in Canada forever. Though I have long been aware of these tragic events, this episode relies on a lot of incredible research by Astrid Idlewild, which I'll link to in the show notes. I learned much of what I know about these events from people who lived through them or who helped run programs that sprang out of them, including Mira Soleil Ross, Monica Forrester, Alec Butler, Jake Pine, and the late Kyle Scanlon and Wendy Babcock. To these people, I feel especially indebted. So join us as OFTV explores the murders on Homewood. Homewood Avenue is located in the heart of Toronto's historic gay village, now known more commonly as the Church and Wellesley Village. Though currently in what seems to be the final throes of a gentrification that continues to expel the remaining gay people and gay businesses, the village has been associated with homosexuality for 200 years. Back then, it gained a reputation as Molly's Bush, Molly being the euphemism of choice for homosexuals at the time, following the sex scandal of Magistrate Alexander Wood, who owned the property. Wood was a Scottish merchant who moved to Upper Canada in 1793. Here's what basically happened. Acting as magistrate, Wood was investigating a rape case. A woman named Miss Bailey had come to Wood after being raped. She said that she did not know her attacker, but that she had scratched his penis during the attack and was sure that this would be easily identifiable. Wood then set out doing what seemed the most logical choice at the time, inspecting the genitals of a number of suspects. 
It's important to note here that there are no records indicating that Wood actually did anything wrong and no evidence to suggest he was homosexual prior to this. However, rumors quickly spread that he had fondled the young men. The story got out of control so quickly that people began claiming that Miss Bailey never existed and Wood was simply using this made-up personage as an excuse for his lechery. He soon gained the nickname Molly Wood, basically Faggy Wood in today's parlance. Law clerk John Robinson even derisively referred to Wood as Inspector General of Private Accounts. Judge William Dummer Powell, a friend, confronted him with these accusations and Wood wrote back, I have laid myself open to ridicule and malevolence which I know not how to meet. That the thing will be made the subject of mirth and a handle to my enemies for a sneer I have every reason to expect. Judge Powell gave Wood the option of fleeing Upper Canada instead of being charged for sodomy, so Wood fled. He would return two years later when he fought in the War of 1812. His reputation as a homosexual persisted, and he and Powell came into dispute, leading to a defamation trial against Powell, which Wood won, though Powell refused to pay. Powell published a tract mocking Wood at the time. Finally, in 1827, Wood purchased the 50 acres around Young and Carlton, which came to be known as Molly's Bush for the rest of the 19th century. Its association with homosexuality would eventually lead men to use the area as a cruising ground for sex partners, and by the middle of the 20th century, the church in Wellesley Gay Village was established. Several years ago, a controversial statue was erected of Alexander Wood in the gay village on a corner traditionally used by male street-based sex workers. The statue was in part an effort to discourage sex workers from using the corner. They also removed the benches and replaced them with Bixie bikes. Some felt that it was disrespectful to put up a statue of a man who may actually have been straight, and others felt it was an act of colonization to erect a statue of this white man on stolen indigenous land that he helped colonize. Personally, I agree with both of these takes, and would add that it does not help that this statue is ugly. There's so much history to explore in the gay village. I worked for five years in the village at the local LGBT center and got a lot of wonderful opportunities to learn about its history from older gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans people who'd been living, working, and cruising in the village for as much as 50 years. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the village in Toronto, visit queerstory.ca where you can watch short two to five minute documentaries on various aspects of the village's history. In fact, the very subject of today's episode is covered in one of these videos by none other than yours truly. I'll link to it in the show notes. The corner of Homewood and Maitland is just a few blocks away from the intersection of Church and Wellesley, around which the gay village centers right in the heart of downtown Toronto. Let me give you an idea of what this area looks like. 
To the northwest of the corner is the field of Jarvis Collegiate Institute, the second oldest high school in the province of Ontario, established in 1807, shortly before the Alexander Wood scandal I discussed earlier. To the northeast is a large, low-income, high-rise apartment building. To the south, on both sides, are small Victorian houses. And on the southwest, after a block of these, there is another large, low-income, high-rise apartment building. At around the same space on the southeast side is an alley that leads to other small, run-down houses and alleyways. Like many side streets in this neighborhood, Homewood is one way, ostensibly to reduce traffic to just residents. This corner has long been referred to as the tranny stroll. Since the mid-1980s, Homewood and Maitland and surrounding streets have been home to the majority of Toronto's street-based trans sex workers. At the peak of its golden era, I've been told that as many as 40 trans women and drag queens would be out at the same time on this roughly one city block area with cars lining up to check out the selection. Nowadays, after gentrification efforts I hope to discuss in an upcoming episode, as well as the 21st century shift from outdoor sex work to online sex work, only maybe five trans women work there a night. But our story takes place back in 1996. I'd like to take a moment before we jump into the whole story to note a few things about what exactly I mean when I say trans sex workers and why the so-called tranny stroll came to be where it is today. When I talk about trans sex workers, I don't always mean transsexual sex workers. In other words, trans women who are intent on using hormones and or surgeries, more or less following the standard medical model laid out by doctors, whether or not they have access to those doctors. I am speaking about them, but I am also speaking about the wide range of drag queens, cross-dressers, transvestites, and effeminate gay men, all of whom may use some kinds of legal or illegal hormones, surgeries, or silicone injections to alter their appearance either permanently or temporarily. Not all of these people would readily identify as women if asked. Many, especially those for whom English is not their first language, are more likely to refer to themselves as gay, even if they live their lives entirely as women. Now, the reason the trainee stroll came about where it is, is fairly simple. Homewood and Maitland is walking distance from a number of long-standing drag bars on Church Street, frequented primarily by low-income drag queens, trans women, and gay men. After bars close, many queens and trans women flow out into the streets and try to make a little money before going home. This area is specific. There are separate nearby strolls for cis women and cis men. However, it is also permeable. So, for instance, sometimes cis women will work alongside trans women and drag queens in a mutually beneficial arrangement that helps the trans women pass as cis to potential clients and lets the cis women work under the protection of the often physically larger trans women and drag queens who have long kept the Homewood Maitland stroll mostly free of pimps. 
May 20th, 1996. Three street-based sex workers, Brenda Ludgate, Sean Jr. Keegan, and Deanna Wilkinson, were going about their lives. It was Victoria Day, a national holiday celebrating Queen Victoria with fireworks and beers, basically straight people's version of pride. Brenda Ludgate was a 25-year-old cis woman working the streets in the West End, far away from the church in Wellesley Village. Across town, Sean Jr. Keegan, a 19-year-old drag queen who, according to a friend of mine, may have identified as a trans woman, was working the Homewood Maitland stroll. Nearby, trans woman Deanna Wilkinson, 31 years old at the time, was also working. A man unknown to all of them named Marcelo Palma loaded five hollow point bullets into his registered Rugger .357 caliber revolver. Astrid Idlewild notes that hollow point bullets are legal in Canada. Palma was about 30 years old, married with one child. At his trial, his wife Rosa would describe years of erratic and abusive behavior. The previous year, Rosa Palmer says he had begun talking about wanting to kill himself. Several months before the Victoria Day 1996 events, Rosa had found him sitting in a closet with a gun to his head. In February of that year, he put the gun to her head during an argument. Palma, it would later come to be known, had been frequenting downtown Toronto strolls as a client as early as 1991. And Rosa threw him out after she caught him cheating with another woman. That awful Victoria Day... Palma's mistress had spurned him as well, sending him into a rage. By this time, Palma had already been under the care of a psychiatrist. However, this hadn't stopped him from amassing a personal arsenal, including six restricted weapons certificates and six firearms. Back to Victoria Day, 1996. Around 11 p.m., Brenda Ludgate was approached by Marcelo Palma in a laneway near King Street West and Tecumseh Street in Parkdale. Witnesses heard her scream no before a shot rang out. Palma had shot her in the back of the head, suggesting she may have tried to escape. Many have speculated that Palma targeted Brenda Ludgate because he questioned her womanhood. There are, unfortunately, few details about who Brenda was or what her life was like. We know only the sensational aspects, that she was struggling with substance use issues, and that she had tried several times to quit using drugs and alcohol. An hour later, Palma moved across town to the village in his red pickup truck. Sean Jr. Keegan was 19 years old and living with HIV. Keegan had been homeless since being evicted from a squat two weeks prior. Keegan was well-known in the community and shortly after the eviction took part in a protest against youth homelessness at Nathan Phillips Square. They performed as a drag queen at Bar 501 and, like many low-income drag queens, made ends meet by doing sex work on the Homewood Maitland stroll. One person claimed that Keegan had only been working on the stroll for three days before the incident.
Palma solicited Keegan on Homewood, and Keegan took Palma into a stairwell for the underground garage at 40 Homewood, the large apartment building to the southwest of the corner of Homewood and Maitland, which I described before. It was raining, and Palma put away his umbrella. In the stairwell, Palma shot Keegan. From the evidence at the scene, it appears that Keegan then got up and tried to escape, and Palma shot them again, this time killing them. Palma then put his umbrella back up and walked across the street, and minutes later solicited Deanna Wilkinson. Deanna Wilkinson was a trans woman known to be taking hormones and considering sex reassignment surgery. The only other fact I can find about her is that she was a poet. Palma had only to cross the street to find her. He took her into the alley on the southeast side of Homewood and Maitland, and just before midnight shot her. She was heard yelling, you bastard, right before the shot rang out. Few people in the neighborhood paid attention to the shots fired, likely because it was mistaken for fireworks. However, the fact that street trouble would regularly be ignored because it was assumed to be caused by trans sex workers suggests there may have been other layers for the lack of immediate response. Palma fled the scene, though he would end up staying in Toronto for a week before leaving the city with his brother Frank to head to Montreal. The story would break on May 22nd, gaining national media attention through articles in every major newspaper. It was the first time a murder of a trans person had made the front page of the Toronto Star. As Astrid Idlewild has thoroughly described in her essays, the cis news media were vicious. Both trans victims were misgendered, as were their trans friends who spoke to reporters. While a nationwide manhunt was underway for Marcelo Palma, all of the papers placed blame on the victims themselves. The Globe and Mail interviewed one homeowner on Homewood, quote, I think it's going to happen sooner or later that a transvestite would be killed because of how people feel about these transvestites, said Nick Thompson Wood, owner of Homewood Inn, Bed and Breakfast. Deanna Wilkinson was almost exclusively referred to by her previous name and sometimes even with the pronoun it in the news coverage. Only four days after their murders, Rosie DiMano summarized the victims in her column, quote, a homely hooker with chronic substance abuse problems, a teenage boy who liked to dress up as a woman because he could make more money that way turning tricks, and a beautiful pre-operative transsexual who was one of the most established queens on the street. The same article goes on to say, it is, they say, as if the violence perpetuated against them is somehow sanctioned, not as obscene as the murders of teenage schoolgirls abducted off the streets. And also, she writes, but surely it is a grievous insult to suggest that the rest of us have somehow contributed to these triple murders by not doing enough to embrace, to reinforce gay rights or prostitutes' rights. Another lurid article by DiMano begins, quote, They are twittery and exotic creatures, an exaggeration of femininity, all gloss and polish and seductive giggles. 
Her fourth and final column on the tragic murders begins, quote, The cop works the edges of the scrum, cocking an ear towards the hefty hooker in the teensy-weensy skirt, cantilevered breasts overflowing the cups of her black bustier like freshly rising dough. Her articles set the tone for the dozens to come as reporters seemingly try to one-up each other in a battle to further eviscerate the victims. When the suspect was identified a week later as Marcelo Palma, DiMano and other writers began to describe him as a family man, an upstanding citizen. This valorization incensed queer, trans, and sex worker activists and community members. The only news outlet to cover the story in a remotely respectful way was Toronto's long-standing gay newspaper, Extra. A June 6, 1996 article is titled, Taken Before Their Time, Three People Whose Dreams Will Never Be Realized. In stark contrast to the straight media, Extra described Deanna Wilkinson as, quote, sweet and generous, a loner who was well-known within the Homewood Maitland scene. The article goes on to say, She was comfortable to be around once you got to know her, said Vina, a 22-year-old transvestite. A resident of the beaches, Deanna had another life that few knew about. She was a good singer, Vina said. Good enough to do shows. And Arlana, a prostitute who knew Deanna for the past six years, said, She wrote poetry and short stories. She even kept a diary. But Arlana was quick to add that Deanna kept that part of her life quiet. She had her life and her friends out there in the beaches. The article by Michael Keeley ends, quote, Brenda, Deanna, and Sean had problems, problems that kept them tied to the streets. But there were other sides to this trio, ones that did not make for splashy headlines. A woman who wanted to earn a decent living and become a mother. A woman who was a good singer, a poet, and a storyteller and a kid trying to find the man of his dreams. Let them be remembered as three people gunned down before their dreams could be realized. While it was initially assumed by all that the killings were homophobic and or transphobic in nature, upon learning of the murder of cis-straight sex worker Brenda Ludgate, activists quickly realized that while homophobia and transphobia may have played a role, the three victims were united in their status as sex workers. Community organizations were quick to action. The 519 Church Street Community Center, Toronto's LGBT center, held a press conference at the beginning of June 1996 to try to change the harsh media narrative to one more sympathetic to street youth and trans and gay people. At the press conference, Anastasia Kuzik, a representative of the Sex Workers Alliance of Toronto, struck out against a mainstream gay community many sex workers blamed for pushing trans sex workers into more dangerous areas. Marcelo Palma would be found on June 1, 1996 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He was picked up after using his real name and an American Express card to book himself into a hotel. Police raided the hotel room only to find it empty. They eventually found him sitting, quote, zombie-like, as the media described it, nearby at the waterfront. Though it had been rumored in the media that Palmer was intending to flee to Italy, 
there was no evidence found to support their claim. At his later trial, he would explain that he had intended to, quote, clean the scum from the earth. The same day news broke, community groups were meeting to remember the victims even outside of Toronto. One group met in Kingston, Ontario, attracting a small crowd. The Toronto Star covered it. We will not accept Sean's death passively, 15-year-old Ali Kadir declared at the rally. His death was an awakening to many of us. Sean was proud of who he was, despite constant persecution by intolerant people. What followed for the community was a year of meetings and consultations attempting to find the best way for the community to support its most marginalized members who, like Brenda, Sean, and Deanna, had largely been cast aside by society. Queer, trans, and sex worker activists, horrified at the cruel media response from the straight world, were intent to not let Brenda, Sean, and Deanna die in vain. It was clear to activists at the time that the criminalization of sex work in tandem with the tossing aside of queer and trans street youth created the conditions that produced Marcelo Palma's murder spree. By 1997, a plan had formed. The 519 Church Street Community Center applied for funding and approached well-known community activist and artist Mira Soleil-Ross. Ross, a Métis Québécois sex worker, animal rights activist, and early trans filmmaker, and my own personal role model, was hired to create a program that catered to the needs of low-income, sex-working trans people. This program became Meal Trans, a weekly free meal made by a staff of trans volunteers. It was the first multi-service trans social service program in the country. From Meal Trans grew several projects, including Trans Access, which trained low-income trans people to provide trainings and Trans 101 workshops in the fight for trans women's inclusion into women's shelters and services, as well as Trans Youth Toronto, which ran from 2001 to 2014. Another program, Trans Sex Worker Outreach Project, sent trans sex workers out onto the stroll to hand out condoms and check in with trans sex workers working Homewood and Maitland and surrounding areas. From 2010 to 2014, I coordinated these trans services myself with the exception of Trans Access. Though some of these programs were unfortunately dismantled following my departure, their impact over nearly 20 years is incalculable. What the 519 did in creating the country's first multi-service trans programming would end up inspiring communities across the country. Other programs, such as Action Santé Travestie Transsexuelle du Québec in Montreal, would follow the 519's lead in creating programming by and for low-income, sex-working trans people and trans people living with HIV. In essence, the highly organized community response following the murders of Brenda Ludgate, Sean Jr. Keegan, and Deanna Wilkinson changed the landscape of trans organizing in Canada, and there is not a single trans person in Canada who has not benefited in some way, large or small, from the changes this brought about.
Marcelo Palma was eventually tried and convicted in 2001. I have chosen not to get into the nitty-gritty behind his motivations or what became of him because the far more important story here is that of the three lives that were taken and the community that came together in response. This is a story of triumph in the face of tragedy. This is a story about trans people, sex workers, and queer people putting their foot down and refusing to let the straight world continue to ravage us. I may have days when I feel particularly jaded about the state of community organizing, but it is stories like this that make me believe that real change can happen. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. I am indebted to Astrid Idlewild's excellent series of articles on these events, which you can find in the show notes. In addition, I am grateful for the many people involved in these events and resulting events and programs with whom I have spoken over the past eight years, including especially Miera Soleil-Ross, Monica Forrester, Jake Pine, and the late Kyle Scanlon. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. <laughs>